Hello everyone, welcome Saturday afternoon here We're streaming on schedule 3pm Eastern Time With me today is Chris And we have new moderators in the channel Who, well for the most part they're just going to give Chris a little bit of a break so he can focus on the questions. But we have a pretty good community. We haven't needed to moderate that much, I don't think. But one thing we do is that during most of the stream, we're limiting the chat to questions only. So even good intentioned comments are going to be deleted. It's not that there's a anything wrong with many of the things that are being said it's just for one it's a distracting for Chris and the other it's distracting for all of you the idea behind these sessions in my mind is to have us practice and be present right here and now so that the questions are really pure and that you're able to receive the answers in a way that supports your observation and your learning, your study of your own mind, your study of experience. So if you don't have any questions, you can just close your eyes. I'm not going to be showing my face, that's the whole point, I don't want you to be looking at the screen. Close your eyes, take up the meditation object. Focus on your stomach rising and falling. Just say to yourself, rising, falling. And note anything that distracts you. Once it's gone, whatever it was, just come back to the stomach and continue with the rising and falling. Chris is here to ask your questions. If you have any, just post them in the chat. And I'm here to answer them. So I think today we'll just get started. I don't know if we're going to have more people or fewer people. But we didn't, weren't able to broadcast a few times, so a couple of times already. So let's see if there's a backlog of questions. We'll just get right into asking. So then from, from now on, no, nothing in the chat but questions, please. Once we get to the end, then you can start talking again. I'll let you know. But for now, questions only, please. And go ahead, Chris, whenever you're ready. Okay, let's begin. When using a mantra, is there a risk of using the imagination to alter the experience such that it is better described by the mantra? To avoid this, could we use only feeling as a mantra? So first of all, I would take a look at your mind state that causes you to ask this question. I, I don't, I'm not trying to be critical, but it is important to point out that sometimes you, you, you get overly analytical where you start to think about what the risks might be. Before, without asking what the risks might be, to try it and see. I guarantee it's not a very risky practice, but tentatively, if you can trust me on that much, try it out, see if I'm right. And if it doesn't seem risky, keep doing it and practice it. 
and you'll be able to see for yourself what are the results. But this question is a bit um, particular, I mean, or particularly problematic because it, it's a bit of a misunderstanding of what it means to note. Noting doesn't alter the experience at all. The noting happens after the experience. So it's kind of like asking uh, whether a, a person watching a sports game, sports match on television, if they start shouting at the screen, will they be able to change the results of the game? Obviously not. It's quite similar. You, you, noting doesn't change your experience. What it does is it changes your reaction. So the idea is to pick a word that closely resembles the uh, the experience, but more importantly, uh, puts the mind in an objective state where it's able to see the object just as it is without judgment. And that's not because it's it's going to alter the experience. The experience has already happened. What it's going to do is prevent any kind of judgment. Like instead of saying, this is good, this is bad, this is me, this is mine, or any number of things we could re react with. We just react with an objective appreciation that it is what it is. No more, no less. So it, it's not it's not really essential that it be the best mantra you could find. It's just necessary that it be something that describes reasonably well. And reasonably well is enough because... Uh, the mind will will do the rest. The mind will uh, acknowledge that that's what it was. It, it, the mind associates that name with the object. So it's like a reassurance that, yeah, that's all it was. Once you recognize it for what it is. I could see it might be problematic if when you got, uh, when you liked something, instead you said disliking. That would be kind of weird, right? If it was like the total opposite. But even still, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I don't think, I've never tried such a thing, but it's still fairly objective. You're just calling something what it is, except in that case it's not what it is. I don't know what that would do. It would create some kind of weird mind state where there would be doubt and confusion because it wouldn't help you relate to the object. It wouldn't bring the mind to uh, connect with the object. I mean, that's the worst thing that could happen if you use an inaccurate noting, is it wouldn't help you connect and and it wouldn't like reassure the mind that that's all it is because it wouldn't relate to the object. It doesn't have anything, any risk of changing the experience. Don't worry about avoiding such things. Just say thinking or wondering. How do we free ourselves from being stuck in a rut or an addiction of compulsive behavior? Well, there's no easy answer. I, mean, I would say through the practice of mindfulness, but it's something that takes a long time. And it's not just going to be mindfulness. You have to start changing your life. You have to associate with good people. You have to be patient and determined. I would say study, practice, and associate with other 
people who study and practice the Buddhist teaching. I mean, don't expect a quick fix or else you're just going to gloss over the problem because these are deep-seated problems that usually take a long time to free yourself from. What you can do is get on the path towards freedom and that's trying to be more objective and less uh, less caught stuck in your habits. Are there any risks or dangers in mixing meditation techniques? I have done foundation and advanced courses with you, but would like to start practicing with another teacher in the Ajahn Chah tradition. I wouldn't mix. It's not the danger. Biggest danger is probably confusion. I mean, there's always a danger with meditation. You're you're dealing with the mind, and the mind is a dangerous thing. You know, you can drive yourself crazy depending on how you work with the mind. So mindfulness is safe because it's the opposite. It leads to objectivity. But there's lots of potential if you start creating new meditation techniques or, or custom meditation techniques, and without a teacher especially. So what I would say is if you go, if you practice with any teacher, you should follow their teaching. I mean, if you want to start practicing with a teacher in the Ajahn Chah tradition, you should ask them these questions. Because I wouldn't want to advise you. It's like you got a doctor... Uh, stick with that doctor. Would you say that seeing clearly through meditation is the most logical thing one can do in one's life? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a. I kind of like this question because phrasing meditation in terms of logic is useful. Uh, I mean, I, 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 we have to be a little bit careful here that we don't get too enamored by Western frameworks of understanding or describing things or judging things. Right? Like, is it logical or is it illogical? May not be the best, but there is something to that. Like, if you can frame it as logical, then uh, you're you're able to avoid uh well the pitfalls of of faith and and partia and just what subjectivity so you can find uh, confidence in what you do and and justified confidence so phrasing it as logical is is useful like if we talk about happiness and suffering now a lot of now a lot of people who want to find happiness, and they'll tell you, and even if they don't tell you, you can be pretty sure that they do want happiness, but they do things that lead to their suffering. Now you can say that's pretty illogical. Uh, I, I would describe it as internally inconsistent. So it is inconsistent for someone to act that way, right? If people didn't want to be happy, if someone wanted to suffer, then it would be consistent with what they were doing. But there's a sort of lack of logic. So seeing clearly is the most logical thing because it becomes consistent. We don't complain. 
Like if you do something and then complain about the results, you can say, well, that's, you know, kind of, I guess, illogical. It's not really how I would describe it, but there's some, some sort of lack of logic there. This person has, has done the thing that they're now complaining about, you know. They cause their own suffering. So that's really the goal of the Buddhist teaching. And that's why mindfulness really works on a fundamental level. Because you don't have to believe, you don't have to even try to follow the path. You just have to look, and what you'll see is the inconsistency. You'll see, ah, yeah, that's not really logical. I want to do. Th I want this result, but I do this that leads to the opposite result. And seeing clearly is really the the, the essence of that, because well, even further. Uh, seeing clearly allows you to be more logical. So it's, it's, if logic is considered a good thing, which I think it is, and because it deals with consistency, like the the premise and the conclusion are related and that sort of thing, then uh, given that logic is 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 better than because clarity of mind allows you to be more logical or more consistent then uh, logically it's the best thing you can do. I mean, those kind of things make it a little bit more... Uh, well, well, they really support the teaching beyond just blind faith and belief. You know, because anyone can say, do this and it'll lead to this result. But to be able to provide some element of, of logic it can be very powerful you don't ever have to doubt it you remove a lot of the doubt that that can arise and of course the danger because i could tell you to do things that that are really bad for you and say that they were really good for you so you don't you don't know if that's the case what i could be telling you what i'm telling you could be very bad for you you don't know but if i provide you with logic then you don't have to believe me and you don't have, suffer the pitfalls of having to potentially get caught up in something bad, right? So I really religion runs into a lot of trouble because a lot of the things are they say a lot of the things they say are unsubstantiated. But with mindfulness I think we can adequately substantiate it as leading to seeing clearly and substantiate that why seeing clearly allows you to see the inconsistencies and I mean it's really hard to argue with argue against seeing clearly, right? I don't think there's a very good logical argument. That being said, logic has its limits because, of course, uh, strict logic can lead to problems, can lead you to you know, find an, a conclusion that is totally untrue, potentially. You have to be careful not to be a slave to it. But consistency, I think, is is a safe way to describe it. Does sitting on a chair or on a mat make a difference? I would say usually it does. Sitting on a mat is a more powerful, strong, alert position. Sitting in a chair is often is much more similar to lying. Uh, I mean, especially if you're sitting against the back. 
I guess if you're sitting upright, it's less like that. But it's still, it's not as strong and as stable, and it's not. It doesn't make you as alert as sitting cross-legged does. Now, ultimate in an ultimate sense, no, it 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 doesn't. It's just mostly how our body reacts and how our mind reacts to the certain postures. So because it's physically a little bit demanding, sitting on a mat is going to be a little bit more uh, supportive for alertness. Sitting against something with your back against something is a bit of a... I mean, practically for most people it's going to be a bit of a hindrance and you're better off trying to do without that I know a lot of people it's become a thing where there's a lot of sort of negligence in this regard it's technically not wrong and so on a technicality people become kind of dependent on it that's not a very good thing How to introduce a close family member experiencing sadness over loss to meditation without being imposing. I mean, I kind of want to say don't. Um, I think you're better off being mindful yourself. And maybe introduce is the right word. If I guess it's not so much the how, it's to what extent you would introduce. What should you do? What you should do is probably suggest it or mention it to them. But even that really depends on the individual. And most people who are going to take up meditation are going to be interested in it regardless of what you say. If they find out that you're doing meditation, they'll be interested in it already. So I would recommend just mentioning it. So, right, so the, the, the your question is more, how do I get them to start meditating? And it's not really how it works. And the better question is, rather than trying to think, how can I accomplish X, Y, or Z? It's like, what should I try to do? And what you should always try to do is focus on your own practice. Focus on your own state, your own interaction with people and, and events. And so part of that is the logical, well, don't keep it from them if they say how sad they are so on. You can mention how it, meditation has helped, it's supposed to help with sadness. But you have to, really have to leave it up to them. It's the only way to really be fair to them. You know, because uh, it's not fair to other people for us to impose or to push things on them. And they usually react negatively when we try. Is it problematic to miss the noting of disliking of something in meditation? I noticed that I was disliking something sometimes after I'm already noting the sensation itself. Any advice? 
I would note the disliking as well. Just try not to put too many things together. Like, don't just note one thing after another. But if you notice that you're disliking something, just say disliking. It's not magic, like you have to pick one. It's, no, it's not problematic to note one thing and not the other. Just note whatever's there. And try, once you've noted it, to go back to the stomach. Once it's gone away. When lacing my shoes, do I say touching, touching, pulling, pulling, or tying, tying? I wouldn't note multiple times. It's too quick for that. It's like touching, pulling, pushing. That's the more advanced way, let's put it that way. The more basic way is to just say tying, tying, and you have to sort of discern which is going to be more true to your state of consciousness. If you're able to say all the little notes, then by all means. If not, just say tying, tying. But I would I would lean lean more towards saying pushing, pulling, touching. From what I understand, the practice does not need willpower. Not even thinking or studying seems to be of much use. Then what is effort, and how does it come to be? I, mean, I wouldn't take the view that it doesn't take willpower. There's too much in that statement. Just let go of that view, I would say. These kind of ideas, like the idea it, it it relates to self and you just kind of have to put that aside because there's no place in meditation just do the meditation you don't have to think about those things the effort will come as you practice rightly and if you're conscientious and careful you'll find your effort increase what you don't do is force don't encourage the forcing like where you push yourself to do more and more try and note that that ambition right you don't need that. But effort comes, energy comes by itself. Really everything you need comes from being mindful and being conscientious and careful, methodical, systematic. Studying can be useful. Thinking can be useful. You know, Just be careful and use it wisely judiciously when walking do we command the foot right left and in sitting just observe so in walking there's going to be a, a intention to move the foot but you can note that as well. And in sitting, yeah, it's a bit different because there won't be that commanding. You're not really commanding the stomach to rise and fall, though there can be the intention to pressure, to, to force it. Either way, you just observe whatever the intention, observe that as well when you experience it.
I struggle with taking the awareness and clarity I sometimes achieve in meditation outside of my formal sessions. Any practical advice? Struggle is good. Keep struggling. That's where you build effort. And the challenge. Struggle might not be the best way to describe it. I mean, it's fine. I'm not being critical, but maybe uh, challenge is better. And by challenge, because by challenge it just means sometimes you fail, sometimes you succeed, and slowly you get better at it. Struggle, struggle is a good way to describe it, I suppose. Just don't struggle too hard. That's what I'm getting at. Take it as a challenge and be patient and keep trying. When I am in a deep meditation, sometimes I am pulled back by an anxiety related to a fear of death. How can I overcome this? So there's no such thing as a deep med. Well, we're not... We don't speak in terms of deep meditation. If you have something that feels like a deep meditation, you should note something like calm, calm, or even just feeling. If you like it, then note that as well. And if you're anxious, you would say anxious, anxious. But it can be a big problem if you fixate on the deep meditation, like not be mindful of it, because then this is what happened. There's what happens, other things come up and you're not ready for them. So when the anxiety comes, you don't know what's wrong. You don't know how to get rid of it because you want to go back to that deep meditation. Both experiences are part of the meditation, so you don't judge them as good or bad. When you feel anxious, say anxious, or when you're afraid, say afraid, afraid. And when you feel like you're in a deep meditation, note however it feels, calm or there's happiness or pleasure. If it's quiet, note that as well. We're not trying to overcome things. The overcoming will come as a result, but that's not our practice. Our practice is to observe, to face. Everybody understand this as the base. If everybody here right today can remember one thing, then this is it. That we're not here to change, fix, or overcome things. We're here to watch, observe, and understand things. That's how change comes about. It happens by itself. And that's where the logic and the consistency comes in because it has nothing to do with your views, your beliefs. It has nothing to do with your teacher's instruction. It has everything to do with what the mind sees for itself through repeated, systemic, Objective observation. I could spend my entire sit noting everything that comes up and never go back to the stomach. Should I ignore some of the more subtle thoughts, feelings, etc. in favor of the rising and falling? If there's lots of things, you can also say distracted, distracted. But, yeah, you're going to have to eventually deal with that. I don't know if you've done the at-home course, but that might help to sort of help you to focus a little better. Always, You should always go back to the stomach after you note something. That'll help.
In walking, if I understand correctly, we can be aware of something, pressure on the foot we aren't focusing on, for example, not note it, and continue with the base exercise, lifting, moving, etc. If this is correct practice, is it okay to do this while sitting too, in order to build continuity? Maybe to a lesser extent, like if the unnoted sensations don't provoke a strong reaction? No, I wouldn't do that. And sitting, note something. If it, if you notice it, it's already distracted you from the stomach. So once you notice it, note it. And once you've noted, noted it, then go back to the stomach. It's different because you're not engaged in an activity when you're sitting. There's no problem with with switching objects. With walking, it doesn't really work very well. You're much better served just to focus on the foot moving, the foot that's moving. So yeah, in, in walking you can just not note a lot of things. What kind of meditation should we use if we are walking at the faster pace, such as going through the city? To say walking, walking, or right, left, right, left. What is the best way to deal with those this-is-all-futile feelings during meditation? Well, that's not a very good description of the feeling. That's a judgment, but it comes from a feeling. That's a re that's a rea uh, extrapolation based on the feeling. You have to figure out what the feeling is. So this-is-all-futile comes from... Maybe dispassion. It depends what you mean by this. If you think meditation is all futile, that's one thing. But I assume you're talking about like life in general. There can be a lot in there. There can be despair at how futile it is. There can be uh, just a sense of, of dispassion and, and maybe boredom, in which case it's generally wholesome, you know, the sense of dispassion about all the futile things in life. Then you would note that like knowing. I would note that as knowing. Or if it is a feeling, you can say feeling. But there's generally going to be some more basic, something more basic than this is fu all futile. That's not a feeling. So figure out what the actual feeling is, and note that if you think to yourself this is all futile as a result of the feeling, then say thinking, thinking. But just realizing that something is futile is, is not a feeling. It's a thinking. It's a thought. So it's like knowing, knowing, or thinking. Is the verbal repetition of actions, such as thinking, thinking, necessary during meditation, or can one simply think of or focus on the action itself as it happens until it goes away? You can do whatever you want. The world is your oyster. If you want to practice in my tradition, this is how we practice. Why? Because we consider it to be more powerful, uh, more concrete, and more uh, focused more consistent right because the result is going to be more consistent as the act is more consistent so if you haven't read my booklet i recommend you do that if you're interested in our tradition if you want to do an at-home course you can sign up for that they're free it's all free but um can you you can do what you want should you well if you ask me then no you should not you should do it according to what's in the booklet that should be an unsurprising answer because that's how I teach.
Should we go into a cave isolation and meditate 24 hours per day, seven days per week? I don't think you need to go in the cave for that, although it's probably easier. Question is, how would you get food? Assuming that you could you could deal with all those food, washroom, etc. Um, you know, you'd still need a teacher. Assuming you you uh, assuming you're a new practitioner at least. But if you could solve all those things, the the the, the requisites and instruction then absolutely go for it. If you didn't have all those things and you were just going to go and live in a cave and starve to death without a teacher, for most people I think that would be bad advice. Not just because of the starving to death, but also because the lack of the teacher means who knows what the result will be. It's usually, and it's it's not so much about finding someone who's better than you at the practice, it's just an objective opinion. Doctors go to see doctors. Why? Because you know you can't trust your own. You really need someone objective from the outside to look. I think doctors go to see doctors. I'm not sure, but uh, therapists probably have to go see therapists. It's not really how it works. Having a teacher is is fifty percent, at least fifty percent, having just an outside observer to remind you of things that you're probably not going to remind yourself of because you're attached to them. I have serious posture problems, causing me to be unable to meditate in a sitting position for long periods. Is there a way for me to experiment with lying down and still remain alert? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, technically lying is fine. What I would say is you haven't specified what those problems are. If someone were to say, I have, a back, I have serious injuries or real incapacity to sit, then that's one thing. But serious posture problems you've still left some leeway for that to just be your judgment of it. And what I mean by that is you might have pain from sitting up, and that's not necessarily a problem. That's not necessarily a hindrance, because you can note the pain. And I had a lot of pain when I, in the back when I first started. And it eventually goes away as your body strengthens and your mind relaxes and there's less mental tension that makes the body tense, tense and so on. So I would also experiment with doing sitting up, even sitting up cross-legged, even if you can't do it for long periods. Well, just do it for short periods, and maybe you'll find, depending on your situation, again, I don't know the details, but I think often people who would say these sorts of things, who, who don't have some physical impairment, like, like, a, like, a, like they've broken their back or something, you know, um, they find that they're able to sit longer periods and they are able to improve. So don't rule that out entirely because as I said, sitting cross-legged is very useful but so is facing problems. Remember what, this, what I said, meditation is not about fixing, it's about facing. So try to some extent to do that. Do we have to be mindful 24 hours per day, 7 days per week? You don't have to do anything. You can do what you want. 
is an enlightened is an enlightened person like that besides sleeping i suppose it's more that it becomes what you do as a result of the practice because you see more and more how it's the best way to behave you lose all your reactions so you're just mindful. Should we take nirvana to be our reachable goal of meditation in this life? I would take your goal to be mindful in this life, in this moment. Because, well, it's true that that nirvana is the goal. It really is just the perfection of mindfulness. Or it, it, it comes about by the perfection of mindfulness. So your goal should be to be mindful and you should always think of that as your goal because that's what's going to lead you to be mindful. Taking nirvana as your goal is not going to make you necessarily more mindful. It's something that you don't know about. It's like if someone is if someone is in, in university, say, or going for their PhD, it can be deleterious to their progress to focus on graduation. You know, to make a fairly crude crude simile or analogy. Uh, if they do that, they're just gonna get more stressed out. Anytime you you like when I did a my first meditation course or the first time I went to meditate, I remember counting the days until it was done and it's just the worst thing you can possibly do. A much more common one is counting the minutes. You know, your goal is to end the meditation. How many more minutes are left? And even if there's five minutes left, as soon as you know that there's five minutes left, those five minutes just become excruciating, and you can't even sit for one minute because your mind's not not in the right place. So it's that kind of thing. Focus on now. Having goals is too too future oriented, really. Sometimes I experience the meditation like being in a robot that moves automatically and I'm just there describing what's happening, witnessing, making subtitles somehow. Do we want this to happen? So we try not to want things to happen. That's really something you should understand as a base if you do want something to happen, you should not wanting, but this is more like something came up and you're wondering whether it's the right thing to happen. That's not really how we look at things either, because we're going to know for ourselves what is right and what is wrong by observing. So when something new comes up, you don't really know, is it right or is it wrong? So just try and note it. In this case, it might be knowing because you're just aware of it. A simple one we often use for that is just knowing, knowing, because... There's a knowing that this happened, an awareness of it happening. So I'm not going to give you an answer. You'll 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 find out for yourself if you're more mind if you're mindful of it.
a person I know may be passing soon. Should I show this person joy and generosity or give them more space? Joy and generosity. Well, I think the best thing, I'm not sure about joy and generosity. I mean, joy can be dangerous because joy leads to liking and craving and sadness when you don't get what you enjoy. But um, generosity is something good to share. But the best thing for them is most likely mindfulness, unsurprisingly. So I don't know, if you're if you're close enough to them to give them mindfulness, that would be great. Giving people space is also useful a lot of the questions like this like should I do this or should I do that I can't answer I don't know your situation I don't know you I don't know them and just the fact that a person is passing doesn't tell me nearly enough to give you an answer and it's not really useful to give you answers for what to do in your life it's much more useful to show you the tools or help you with the tools to find the answers for yourself because in this case, for example, it doesn't really matter what you do. You know, suppose you do the wrong thing, and they get really angry, and they die very angry at you. you know, it it really honestly doesn't mean that much. I mean, it's a tragic thing that it happened, but all it all you can get out of that is is learning, you know, learning a better way to act in the future. And life is full of these things. We often do the wrong thing. And and in some sense, you can't really blame us because we just didn't know and we did the wrong thing. You know, Buddhism doesn't blame you like, oh, you're a terrible person, you made that person die in a bad way, for example. Buddhism is like, yeah, well, learn, live and learn. That's not the right way to act. And I ho and hope that you've learned your lesson. So it's more about learning lessons as you go. Try and be as mindful as you can. Don't worry about, should I do this or should I do that? Just be mindful and see what comes from that. And it might be the wrong thing because you often don't have all the information. Suppose you you read the situation wrong, but you, know, you were mindful enough. But maybe your brain is not perfect and we're not all very wise. So we do the wrong thing often. And then you learn from that. Much more important than doing the right thing is having the right attitude. Because things are so fickle. How would you define something as being the right thing or the wrong thing? Whereas attitude, you really can. You know, because it's a building block, it's very basic. And they have, there are differences of results that you can see categorically. So these things are qualities of mind that have negative results. These things are qualities of mind that have positive results. You can see that for yourself. There's no doubt there. There's no room for... There's no wiggle room. No room for uncertainty. How do I learn within myself while meditating? So the, that's a good question, I think. The, the essence, um, let's see, the, 
axiom, an axiom in Buddhism, sort of a, a presumption, is that we, in, unless we're enlightened, what it means for, 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 for most of us, or anybody who's born, because if you've been born, it's clear that this is the case, we have ignorance. We are uh, deluded. We don't see clearly is the point. So you have to understand that that's considered to be the the default. The default isn't, oh, oh, look at all these normal people, they're all doing fine, and then, oops, this person fell into suffering, now they better do something about it so they can get back to being like everybody else normal. Now all these normal people, the, the presumption and the claim is that all of them are, are steeped in delusion, and that's that's why the world is the way it is, that's why there's so many problems, because we're not perfect. It's not that we just make mistakes, it's that we're by default ignorant and deluded, clouded in mind. And so the point being that we're constantly doing all sorts of things wrong. That's just the default, that's assumed. It's assumed that even if you don't know someone, it's a pretty good assumption that they're doing lots of things wrong. I think that's not not um, obvious. And we we look at other people and we think, oh, they're pretty normal. We're 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 mostly or we're generally doing things. Let's say fifty-fifty. Some better than others, but mostly fifty-fifty. Some right, some wrong. Some good, some bad. And so meditation. Uh, is described as the process in this meditation. Be clear that there are many kinds of meditation, but when I use the word, I'm generally talking about this specific tradition or any tradition that is similar and has a similar ability. Uh, the, the purpose is to see clearly. And so if it's true what we claim... If you can see for yourself that, oh, I am able to see more clearly, then the ostensible result is going to be uh, the observation of a lot of those things that you're doing wrong. You know, a clearer understanding of what you're doing wrong. So that's learning. By that, you have learned something, and you've learned something important. So if you're interested in how it is that you bring about this seeing clearly, you can read the booklet that we have on how to meditate because it's the process of observing things and trying to straighten the mind out so it's more objective and less judgmental and more present and less distracted. And as a result, you should start to see yourself learning things about yourself. Some people say meditation may induce psychosis. Is that true? If so, how can I ask a teacher to help me with that? Okay, a meditation... I, th I, I, I am not a psychotherapist. I mean, I don't, I don't use this word, psychosis. I'm not saying there's a problem with it. It's just this is a word that is understood best by the people who came up with it 
and the people who train in it and study in it and so on. That being said, my understanding is that there are two kinds of mental illness, two categories, and this might be outdated, it was a long time ago, but I don't even know if they use the word psychosis, but there's something called a psychosis and something called a neurosis. Psychosis, as I understand it, is something that is organic, something that is a, way the, a part of the way the brain of an individual is made. So it's not something that uh, is an onset thing. Neurosis is something that is acquired over time through habit, uh, through obsession, through trauma, that sort of thing, like, like mental trauma. So I don't get how someone could say meditation could induce a psychosis. It might induce neurosis. That's certainly possible. Uh, and and this is just a technicality, so I don't know if you're aware of the difference, and maybe I'm misunderstanding the difference. But let's be clear that there are lots of things that meditation can't do because those are like schizophrenia, for example, because that's just things that are intrinsic to the brain. People hallucinate, hallucinating voices in your head, that sort of thing. Uh, but something like panic attacks. So. Why meditation can induce neurosis is because meditation is just a word. It means the training of the mind. Now you can train the mind in all sorts of harmful things because it, you know meditation is just that broad. Usually when someone uses the word meditation, there's an assumption, and it is just an assumption, that they're talking about something positive, a positive training of the mind. But there's no there's nothing intrinsic to the word meditation that should make you think that it has to be positive. And certainly some claims by teachers that what they are teaching is positive may turn out to be false. And what they're actually teaching you is what they're teaching you is actually something negative, something that's harmful and does lead to neurosis. So if you're to be more specific and say, is it true that your meditation can induce induce neurosis? Then I would say no. I would say it's really not possible and it's not possible because of the very nature of it the nature of it is simplifying the nature of it is straightening now what can happen and this is a danger that has come up is you start using the wrong words like what you want to happen suppose you're unhappy and you start saying to yourself happy happy and you're you're the implication the uh, implicit in that is wanting to be happy so you're trying by the word, by the use of the mantra, to create something, but then you're not practicing this meditation. You're doing something else. So it can happen that people misunderstand what is meant by the the technique. Or if you use a mantra that's totally unrelated to the object, that can cause problems. I mean, just mess up your mind, and depending on the person, can create all sorts of delusions. But them being neurosis, neuroses, means they're just habits and they can come and they go. So I've seen people who practice meditation and had bad results, but it's temporary. You know, over time they'll just go back to being normal again. They're not psychosis.
Should one aim to have harps playing with rain and flowing water sounds during meditation? No. no. Chris, why are you asking me this? I read what's on the cards, Bhante. So this person, I mean, should you... You're, you're asking should, so I can say no. Can you? You can do what you want. But when you ask this question, it's clear that you're talking about a type of meditation unlike the type that I teach. So you probably haven't read our booklet, in which case, if you're sincerely interested in meditation, I would recommend reading the booklet. You can try the at-home course if you're really interested. But there are many different kinds of meditation and I would say you should not practice that way. Other people would teach you to practice that way. So you can also find a teacher like that. To be clear, when you ask me things, I'm going to answer from a specific tradition. I'm not, I'm not a robot up here to give you unbiased answers, though I, I don't like using that word because... You see, I'm not just a, an encyclopedia... I like to th think it's not biased, but to some extent it is biased because I'm only really trained in this tradition. So people ask me about other traditions, I really have to say I just don't know. I don't recommend them because I don't know enough about them. How can I recommend it? Since in the act of witnessing, there is the observer and the observed, I find a duality instead of oneness. I can't find emptiness or no self. I am unable to get out of this perspective. May I have some advice? Oneness is not the goal of meditation. That's a Hindu concept. Nothing to do with Buddhism. Finding emptiness is a Mahayana concept. It's a different tradition. Um, we're not interested in finding emptiness. Finding no self, well, I could tease you and say you, I can't find no self is, is a bit like a dog chasing its tail, right? Of course you can't because you're you're clinging to self. You're trying. You're you're in, you're trying to control the situation. You're using self to try and find no self. So I think you're trying to get out of something that you don't need to get out of, and it's probably based on views and, and ideas, con preconceptions about what meditation is, expectations, and that sort of thing. I would put all that aside, and if you're thinking about it, say thinking. If you're doubting or worried, note that as well. I'm not sure if you've read the booklet, but I'd recommend that if you haven't. If I have a bad habit like smoking, how can seeing it clearly alone stop it? If I enjoy it, to stop it, I would have to become informed it can cause lung cancer. That's a good question. It's reasonable. But here's the point, is doing things because you enjoy them is not a good enough reason. And that's what you'll start to see. You'll start to see that enjoying things is actually a pretty bad reason, because enjoyment leads to addiction. Enjoyment is an addiction you'll start to see as a bad thing, not because you've read a book about it or because I told you, but because addiction leads to disappointment and stress and suffering when you have to seek out and find and potentially can't get what you want. I mean, by its very nature, it's stress-inducing. 
I would say people who who smoke are probably, I mean, I don't have any evidence, but I would be surprised if it were not the case that people who smoke are more stressed than people stressed than before they started smoking. Um, so being mindful allows you to see all this. It allows you to watch yourself when you're enjoying something. You'd say liking, liking. When you feel the calm or the pleasure, you would note that as well. When you taste the smoke, you would note that as well. And you'll start to see it as more and more disgusting and revolting and un unpleasant and unuseful and unhelpful and stressful and so on. And that's why you'll give it up. Not because you were told it can cause lung cancer. It's a much better reason. Not that lung cancer is, is a bad reason, but problem with lung cancer is it's intellectual and that can't really you know everyone knows that it causes lung cancer people who even parents had died of lung cancer still smoke that's the crazy thing it's not a good enough reason it's because it's abstract and intellectual it's not it's not real when sitting cross-legged i lean way forward or to illustrate it another way, I get very hunched over. Is this okay and just something I need to work through, or do I need to adjust my posture? I would recommend if you're really hunched over to just straighten up again. Say something like intending to intending to move, intending to move, moving or raising or so on. And if you go back down, note it again and come back again. Over time, it should work its way out, but it's a valid object of meditation to note that you're hunching and to move back. You don't need to be perfectly straight, so you can just rest a little bit hunched. I wouldn't worry too much about posture in that sense. Try and take it as an object. You might learn something from it. I wouldn't lean way forward. It's probably not that great. Okay, I'm going to end it there, Chris, uh, and the list of meditative questions, let's go through them. No new questions, please. Now the chat, we open it up, so say what you want in chat as long as it's mindful and kind and respectful and thoughtful and conscientious. No more questions, please. Go six, ahead, Chris. Six questions six. ahead, Bante. All right, let's go for them. I find myself often wanting to relax after working hard, but I feel the need to keep doing things to support others. Is it wrong of me to want to relax? Well, you'll know, you'll learn for yourself. It doesn't help if I tell you that it's wrong for you to want to relax. Just try and note wanting, wanting. And when you relax, say relaxing or calm or liking if you like it, that sort of thing. If you feel the need to keep doing things to support others, you can note like worried or wanting to do that or so on. If you feel guilty, that's kind of a worry. You can say worried or guilty or so on. Explaining the practice to others in a very essential and simple way, could we summarize the practice with just asking one question, like, what are you experiencing in this very moment? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And that's really a good, a good um, technique, you know? All these questions about how do you bring meditation to someone best thing you can do is start asking them questions. Asking questions is a really good way to approach people in this world. Rather than preach to them or try to push something on them, just ask them questions about their life. It's 
that's what a therapist does, right? And I, 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 th I don't, I've never studied that, but I'm, I assume that that's where they get this from. You just get the people to, because what do they do? And now you start to understand why we do what we do is because then they say to you, I feel very angry. Ah, isn't that very similar to what we tell you to do? Except what we do is a bit more concentrated and focused. That's the only difference. But yes, when you ask the person that question, they're going to gain mindfulness, you see. You've triggered something in them. And they're going to look and see, what am I experiencing? Like, you don't have to put it so formally. Like, how are you feeling right now? I guess that's the sort of thing a therapist would ask. person can look inside, see what they're feeling. I feel sad. And just acknowledging that is very powerful. That's why therapists do it. It's a great way to get them into this way of looking at things, starting to observe. I think we just go further, and that's really something that therapists should maybe look at. Is, And probably they do. I'm sure there are therapists out there who teach similar meditation like this as a way of getting, you know, okay, now I'd like you to try this simple meditation practice and so on. How does meditation in this tradition lead to purification of the mind? Do we just keep noting until we get to a place of no suffering? Or is it a way to direct our thoughts differently, i.e. purifying? So our ordinary way of responding things to things is impure. It's judgmental. This is good, this is bad, and so on. By noting to ourselves, we create purity in the mind uh, that is free from judgment. That's the purity that we create. That's, that's the basic purity. There's actually more to it than that. Because once you have a pure mind, you haven't solved the problem. But that purity of mind, where you're just seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing, pain is pain, and so on, uh, allows you to see more clearly that the things that you cling to are not worth clinging to, that the clinging is the cause of suffering. And if you see that enough, it leads to knowledge and vision, which is the real purifying. Because once you have knowledge and vision, you don't need to practice anymore. You've seen for yourself. And by knowledge and vision, I really mean Nibbana. When, you, when the mind lets go and you've seen perfectly clear and you experience cessation. Anyone who's had that experience has some knowledge and vision that is purifying. Since there's only experience in meditation, is the moment of past, present, and future a mere concept? I have experienced things many times over before they happen, and sometimes they don't happen. I think I'm going to pass on this question. It's a bit too theoretical. I would say just try and note those questions and wondering and so on. It's not really what we do. If you haven't read the booklet, I recommend reading it. That's what I teach. What is the best way to subdue sensuality for cigarettes or alcohol? Mindfulness. Read the booklet. Do an at-home course. But patience, you know, takes time. Honestly, cigarettes and alcohol, I would guess, are not that hard. From what I've heard, and well, with alcohol, I mean, I don't think it's very common for a meditator to be inclined towards alcohol once you start to be more mindful. So those are things that don't take that long if you're dedicated. In your book, laziness is one of the hindrances. 
What causes laziness? All the hindrances are caused by ignorance, delusion. They just become habitual. Those were the six, Bhante. Okay. Good questions. Well, lots of questions. Thank Sad. you all, and thank you, Chris, for being so patient and asking all the questions. And thank you, Max. I see he's a bit involved in the chat. Thank you, all of you, for coming out. Have a good day, a good week. I'll try to be back again Wednesday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, be mindful. <laughs>